Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It's printed on page 6 of the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given in you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly, as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A church divided over leaders. I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray, friends. Jesus, thank you for being present. We thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. And so we're saying that with hope and anticipation because we know that your word is not presented, spoken, shared, molded over, internalized without cause. <laughs> it, 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 it never fails to accomplish what you intend for it to do, which is to change our lives which is to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, here in this room, here in our hearts. So please do that. We expect that you will. Send your Holy Spirit. Uh, make these words to pierce our lives and to make us more like Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year, again, when we like to try new things. So for some of us, it might be a, a, a new workout routine or maybe a new sweater that you got from Christmas. Maybe you're wearing it today. Uh, maybe a new book that you've started to read. 
People like to start new things in the new year. And it's one reason why some people, maybe you, like to make New Year's resolutions, right? I won't ask you how those are going, 14 days in, right? But uh, it's a time for new things. And here's a new thing that our church is starting. Today we're starting a new sermon series on the New Testament book of Corinthians, which is probably best known for its 13th chapter on Love, you might have heard it read recently at a wedding ceremony, perhaps. We're going to be studying this book over the next several months, all the way through the spring, and so let me just tell you a little bit about it, give you a little bit of background on this book. First Corinthians was originally written by the Apostle Paul. It was a letter. We see his name in verse 1 there as the author of this work. And it was written to the church in Corinth, which is named in verse 2. Corinth was a large and bustling city in ancient Greece. And Paul was familiar both with that city as well as the church that was there because he actually founded that church, spent a couple of years there. You can read more about the start of the Corinthian church in the book of Acts chapter 18. And that was just three years prior to when this letter was written, which was around A.D. 54. And so the Christian church, it was a young church, again, only about three years old. But it was full of dynamic growth. It was full of gifted people, and it was full of problems, problems galore, Relational problems, moral problems, theological problems. Someone in the church evidently was sleeping with his stepmother. Members were taking each other to court. Others were frequenting brothels. The wealthy were turning the church into a social club and excluding the poor. Many are second-guessing Paul's authority as an apostle, let alone his committed love to them. There was widespread confusion about marriage and singleness and this thing called spiritual gifts as well as the resurrection of Christ and how to even relate to their Greek neighbors at dinner parties that were being thrown. The Corinthian Christians were deeply loved by God, but they had become arrogant and competitive and self-serving. So the Apostle Paul had gotten wind of these problems and he loved the Corinthians too much not to reach out to the church and that's how we got this letter. This is the Apostle speaking into these issues, not only correcting them, but reminding them of the only hope and the only solution and the only power for them to change and grow, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So today we're looking at just the first 17 verses of 1 Corinthians And here we find two important lessons, two important themes. First, giving thanks for a flawed church. And secondly, seeking unity in a divided church. So two things. First, giving thanks for a flawed church. And secondly, seeking unity in a divided church. Let's look at those in turn. First, seeking or giving thanks rather for a flawed church. The Apostle Paul begins the body of his letter to the church in Corinth 
with a word of gratitude and praise. You heard it in verse 4. It says here, I always thank my God for you. And the you in the ancient text is plural. Paul is talking to the entire community as a whole. He's not just thinking about individuals. He's giving thanks to God for the church. Now, three things stand out here. First, Paul is not expressing thanks to the Corinthians or thanks for the Corinthians because he's blind to the church's flaws. This letter deals with a lot of those flaws in great detail, even in the second half of this passage, but he gives thanks anyways. Think about that. Second, verse 4 says, I always give thanks to my God for you. Which, as I just said, doesn't mean that Paul always and only just feels warm fuzzies towards this church, towards the Corinthians. It means, rather, that Paul made a commitment. He chooses to give thanks to God for them again and again and again. For every thought that he has, for the flaws of the church, and there were many, he also always at the same time, gives thanks to God for the church. And third, notice what fuels Paul's thanksgiving. He says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you. Why? Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And then he doesn't just list all the things that the Corinthians have done for him personally. Rather, Paul lists all the things that God has done for the Corinthians in the gospel. In verse 4, he reminds them that they're in Christ. In Christ, which means that they're spiritually joined to Jesus by their faith in him. So if you put your trust in Jesus, his death counts as your death, and so your sins are forgiven. And his perfect life counts as yours, and so you're fully accepted by God. And now Christ himself lives in you. Spiritual promises that Paul is reminding the Corinthians and also us. In verse 6, the apostle tells them of our testimony about Christ among you. God is not far off. He's actually present in their community and working in their lives. And in verse 5, he reminds them, you have been enriched in every way. And in verse 7, he says, you don't lack any spiritual gift. God has actually blessed them abundantly, given them spiritual power, even supernatural abilities to love. And in verse 8, he reassures the Corinthians that God is preserving and protecting them. He says, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God not only loves them today, he will love them forever. God not only loves you today in Christ, he will love you forever, and he never breaks his promises. As verse 9 declares, God is faithful. Recently, I was talking to someone about how much I appreciate my wife Paula, but in the course of that conversation, I started to notice that everything that I was sharing all had to do with me. Uh, Everything that I was sharing uh, was uh, she does this for me or she makes me feel this or that way that I was the only reference point for my gratitude 
for my wife. If we're honest, that's sort of a tendency I think that we all have, myself most certainly. If we're honest, we might admit that our gratitude, even our gratitude, tends to be self-centered. We tend to give thanks only for things that benefit me personally. This, in fact, is true, I think, of even how we think about the church. What have you done for me lately? And we generally tend to relate to the church as consumers, and so we don't even realize that there might be a different way, indeed a better way, to give thanks. Not just for what the church does, but who the church is. As one commentator pointed out, Paul's thanksgiving is not for personal benefits for him, but for what God has given to others. So what does all this mean for us, How does this apply to us today? If you're a follower of Jesus, friends, do you choose to give thanks for the church? Have you done so lately? And not just for individuals, which generally tends to be people you like or people that have been kind to you. And of course, there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's right to give thanks for those folks. But have you recently given thanks to the church as a whole? Uh, the body. And not just when the church serves your needs, but even in the face of seeing its real flaws. And truth be told, its flaws are many. Do you pray for the church more than you complain about the church. And by church, of course, I do mean both the broader Christian church as well as this particular church, Grace Meridian Hill. Do you, friends, notice the evidence of God's grace and his faithfulness more than you notice her failures? Thinking about this in the past week, for myself, has been a challenge. Uh, partly having front row seats as a minister and recognizing the church's many flaws, but also realizing just the arrogance and the pride of my heart. I'm critical. I'm analytical. I'm, judge, I'm judging. And then I'm pretty sure I'm always right. Do you give thanks for the church? And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? You know, Paul points us to a, a different source of gratitude. Right? Not just what has the church done for you lately, but who is the church and what has God done for her? What has God done for those in your midst? Those who embrace the person of Christ? Those whose lives have been changed? Those who are joined to Jesus? Those who have every spiritual blessing made available to them through Christ. I mean, that basis of gratitude is far more objective and therefore it's more enduring. Some of us are miserable in the church because our only reference point in relation to the church is ourselves. Paul invites us to consider 
the grace of God that you see evidence in the lives of other people. He invites us to consider the promise of God's presence that's affixed upon all those who profess his name. Give thanks for that. Paul points our attention to the protection that God gives to those who are his own. Protection all the way to the very end. He reminds of the faithfulness of God to his people. These are the things that ought to enliven our hearts to say, I cannot believe that you could be counted among God's people in this sort of way. I thank God for you. I thank God for you. I thank God for you. Have you said it in your heart lately? And this is a battle, friends, isn't it? Because criticizing the church can become a sport, a hobby, and even a habit. I think in a prior generation, there was probably far too much condemnation of criticism where that just was sort of out of bounds and not allowed. In these days, we've probably swung too far the other way, where criticism so often becomes cancerous. It spreads and engulfs our hearts, our lives. And again, it's not even just criticism that you might verbalize. It's also the criticism you quietly nurse in your heart. And I'm well aware that a pastor making this point really can come across as being self-serving, right? And talking about the gratitude you should express to God for even our church. I'm also well aware that as a pastor that I am one of the most flawed parts of the church. And so I'm pointing us to this thought, not based upon my performance or upon the church that we are, but based upon the word of God. And as one who's a recipient of God's grace, I'm humbled by the number of times that I myself have had to admit my mistakes or ask for forgiveness from many of you, even just in the last several weeks, couple months. Five times in this paragraph alone, Paul mentions the person of Jesus as he is giving thanks for this very flawed Corinthian church, and it's because he knows that's the ultimate grounds upon which he can thank God for this church, and that's the ultimate ground upon which we can give thanks for what God is doing in our midst. It's Jesus. It's not you. It's the life and promise of Jesus. It's not our perfection. What do you see more as you look, not with eyes of the flesh, but look out around you with eyes of faith. Can you see her true heavenly identity, the reality of what the church is, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, rather than simply her flaws? The gospel calls us out of ourselves and into gratitude. Will you give thanks for the flawed church today? Secondly, another theme we encounter here comes in the second half of this passage, seeking unity in divided church, which of course means this week Alabama football fans must reconcile with Georgia football fans and Philadelphia Eagle fans with Patriots and Steelers fans. Redskins wish they could just even be in a fight, right? Of all the things I just said, you're moaning at this, all right? <laughs> these days, let's be honest, these days there's a lot of talk 
about the quote-unquote divided nation that we've become. And unfortunately, there is a lot of talk, some would say, the same about the church in America. So what does the Bible have to say about division in the church? Well, a lot, actually. One of the main reasons why the apostle is writing the Corinthian church is because they've become a fractured and a divided community. Look at verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Specifically, the kind of divisions that the Corinthians apparently were struggling with was the formation of splits and factions based upon the popularity of certain leaders in the church. Which is why in verse 12, Paul explains, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. I like Apollos' preaching better. No, I like Paul's leadership style better. Cephas is my man The Corinthians were guilty of building loyalty to human leaders that exceeded their common loyalty to Jesus, and it was ripping apart the community. Someone says, doesn't this just happen in churches all the time? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. The word translated division here in this passage is actually used in other parts of the New Testament for the tearing of a fishing net or of a garment. It's the language of ripping. You see, divisions in the church are a tearing apart of the family of Christ. In verse 13, Paul asks rhetorically, is Christ divided? Because division in the church is the spiritual relational dismemberment of Jesus. You are ripping apart the very limbs of the body of Christ. As we apply even the warning against divisions based upon loyalty to leaders and their popularity amongst us, it's worth just clearly stating that as far as the pastors of this church are concerned, I know I can speak on Yancey's behalf and say that in this community, we just won't stand for it. People dividing according to our leadership or in alignment with our name. Do not divide this church into preferences for a certain pastor. Do not compare us in your conversations in an unhealthy manner. Don't do that with us. Don't do that with future elders or members of our diaconate or even members of your ministry teams or your neighborhood group leaders where we are selecting out people and tying our hearts and our words and our thoughts more to human leaders than we do to our ultimate leader, indeed our Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, as we speak of divisions, it works far beyond even that of divisions based upon leaders There are all sorts of kinds of divisions that we find in the church. Divisions based upon politics and ideology. Divisions and separations in the church based upon social class. 
or social status. Divisions based upon gender. And I want to point out that it's not that you're in a formal group wearing a t-shirt and are literally rallying behind a person and separating yourselves. I'm also talking about the way in which we just don't relate to one another or find friendship across these differences. It's where you don't actually seek out people that might not naturally flow your direction because you instinctively or maybe factually know that there's a lot that you might disagree upon. Of course, on this weekend, it's wise for us to consider the ways in which the church is so often divided by race and ethnicity. And again, I point your attention to the fact that it's not because, as far as I can see, we have factions in our church formally where people are separated according to race or ethnicity, where people are putting up literal barriers in the pews saying we don't want to be near one another, but are there divisions in your friend list? Are there divisions in who you call when you need help? Are there divisions in the relationships you have who you're more willing to put in that extra mile to get to know that person or to serve their needs? We just shrug and say, well, that's just life. Jesus says you're ripping Jesus apart. And so, of course, we pay attention to the words of Dr. King and the letter from the Birmingham jail, which we will read tomorrow evening, come again, and even as we're reminded that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America, even churches in our own city. Dr. King invites us not just to consider the way in which churches can be segregated by race and ethnicity and culture, but rather that we examine the reasons why. <laughs> this year, can you be pondering over and praying over the reasons why? We can be so easily separated according to ethnicity. Dr. King, in the letter from a Birmingham jail, wrote about Christians who tend to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. Uh, friends, why these divisions? In another place in the letter, Dr. King also pointed out his disappointment with the church, specifically the, the passivity of Christians, people like ourselves, Christian unwillingness to challenge the sinful status quo and address the problems of inequity and injustice where Dr. King was pointing out the ways in which we tend to opt for what he called a negative peace. That's just uh, an, the absence of tension and discomfort. We don't want to ruffle feathers. Uh, and look, hey, look, there's no obvious problems in our midst. We're getting along, aren't we? Dr. King says, no, that's just a negative peace. What we need to work for is a positive peace, which is not just the absence of tension, but the presence of justice the presence of equity, the presence of shalom and love and genuine Christ-centered friendship across our differences. Is that what we long for? 
Is that what we're laboring for? This is indeed what Christ is calling us to. Paul says to the Corinthians, be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. And of course, that doesn't mean just thinking exactly the same. Rather, it means sharing the most important core beliefs and convictions that define who you are. Unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, one of the massive problems that we're facing in our time is that we've lost the ability to disagree well, uh, to hold our differences with an open hand, to be humble in discourse with people that are coming from different places. It's important to be a community that leaves room for disagreement and diversity on views of, of a secondary and tertiary degree of importance. But on the things that really matter, Christ and his gospel, the things that shape our minds and hearts and imaginations about why we're here and who we are, these are the things that Paul calls us to anchor ourselves in, to find a common unity to overcome this church deformity called division. And to finish up, as he calls our attention to this, he points us to a couple of things, a couple of solutions for how we can forge this kind of unity, which isn't just a superficial getting along, but a deeper, Christ-formed solidarity. First of all, he points us to family. Twice in this very paragraph, he addresses the church as what? Brothers and sisters. Christ, when he redeems us, he doesn't just bring us into relationship with himself individually. He brings us into a spiritual family, the family of God. And family, of course, is messy, clumsy, sometimes awkward. Look, even in my own family recently during dinner, I went to the kitchen to get a glass of water. And as I filled the cup, I don't know what happened, but somehow it slipped out of my hand and I ended up spilling water just all over the floor, an entire cup. As you can imagine, I was kind of annoyed, a bug that now I had to get down and clean this thing. And while I was on my hands and knees drying up the floor and wiping the floor, it came to my mind, that, hey, you know, this is a chance uh, where I can instruct the kids a little bit, you know, a chance where I can show the kids that it's okay to have accidents. You know, we're trying to be a family of grace, model a little bit of even my own weakness before the kids. And, and so I said, hey, kids, you know, see, daddy spills water sometimes too. Daddy spills water sometimes too. And that's when I hear a voice coming across the kitchen from the dinner table cackling, ha ha, daddy has to clean it up himself. <laughs> you know, I said, that's not how I saw this teachable moment playing out. But that's family, right? I can tell you a thousand other stories like that. Family is awkward. Family is sometimes strange. Family, friends, is sometimes painful. Painful. But Paul says, don't you know, when you've been redeemed by Christ, you've been brought into something like a family, where you call each other brothers and sisters where you put yourself out there and you take risks and sometimes you get mocked, sometimes you get hurt, sometimes you wonder if it's worth it. But you also, at the same time, have a place where you can run, a place where you can find care and comfort, a place where, yes, your needs can be 
met and you can be supported in times of trial and trouble. A place where you can go when you feel lost. A place where you have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children. and A place that you can call home. Paul says, do, do you know that you might have differences that might even threaten to divide you, but don't you know you're, you're a family? Have you looked around lately and said, this is my family? Secondly, he points us to a new identity, a new identity. A couple times in the end here, he talks about being baptized into Christ rather than the name of some human leader. He says, I want to make sure that no, none of you can ever say that you were baptized into my name because apparently people were saying that. That I've been washed by the blood of Jesus, but, but Paul is my leader. Apollos is the one that I follow. My loyalty is with Cephas. And Paul is saying, don't you know your true identity needs to be formed and reformed by the person of Jesus. He's the one that should shape your highest sense of identity, your deepest sense of who I really am. And that that then unites us. That's what makes us one. Does it? The gospel? Your life in Christ? Is that what primarily shapes who you believe yourself to be? You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, think about this. You, in fact, have more in common with other followers of Jesus concerning the things that matter most in life as compared with anyone else in the world. At least that ought to be true. You share a, a same common sense of where atonement can actually be achieved. Where do you go for forgiveness besides the cross of Christ? You agree with other followers of Christ about the source of human dignity being made in the image of the God who has made us and loved us. You share a, a vision about the destiny that you have after life, after death. You share a common vision about your reason for existing, the glory of God. Your ultimate motive for loving your neighbor, that is that you've been so sacrificially loved by God in Christ. You have a shared source of the ultimate authority for understanding life, which is the word of God. You both share together the same power that you have to grow and change, which is the Holy Spirit. You share together the, the greatest joy in life which is not winning the national championship despite what Coach Nick Saban says, but salvation in Christ. And you believe all these things and you embrace all these things and you share all these things, these things that are your identity. Let me say it again. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have more in common with other followers of Jesus concerning the things that matter most in life as compared with anyone else in the world. Have you thought about that lately? And get this, if you still shake your head and you say, no, nah, that ain't true, maybe your identity is most defined than by your politics, or by your gender, or by your race or ethnicity, or by your geography, or whatever other thing that threatens to divide 
Maybe you've made that thing your savior, your God. A thing that you are not willing to give up. See, Paul says, was Paul crucified for you in verse 13? Which is a way for him to say, this thing that's making you all divided, are you treating that like the thing that saves you? Beloved, maybe we are despite our professed beliefs, despite our publicly confessed identity. If Jesus is the one who defines you most, if indeed you've embraced him for all that he says he will be for you, then you have every grounds to look at a fellow brother and sister in Christ. And despite all your very real and sometimes substantial and important differences, politically, ideologically, racially, and otherwise, you can look at them and say, we are one. You are my brother. You are my sister. We share a baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what matters most. Thirdly, the apostle gives us not only family and a new identity and loyalty, he points us to the cross of Christ. Verse 13, he talks about, he uses the language of being crucified, Christ crucified for us. In verse 17, he refers to the cross of Christ. We're going to talk about the cross of Christ again and again over the next couple of weeks, but let me simply point this out. It's at the cross where we both together humbly confess that we all stand before God as sinners. We're humbled together because there's no other way for us to atone for our sins, no matter how hard we try and no matter what number of good things we might do. We stand on level ground, all of us, because we are common sinners before God. That'll humble the heart. That'll provide some basis for unity and solidarity, but not enough, not by itself. The other side of the cross is that though we're sinners, we are together in Christ, saved by grace. That defines our reality, what we share together. That we are recipients together, not more than one or the other, together recipients of the radical grace of Jesus, the radical love of God the Father for his children. Because we were helpless, but we were rescued. Because try as we may to earn the favor of God, we fail every time. It must be given to us as a gift, not on the basis of of your superiority over another, but rather on the basis of grace, which begins to humble our hearts and unite us one to another, which slaughters the superiority complexes in our hearts, and raises us from the ashes of inferiority, which gives us a fresh and common identity, not only as family, and not only in the name of Christ given to us in our baptism, but surely at the foot of the cross as sinners saved by grace. Paul points us to these wonderful, amazing truths of the gospel. And he says, don't you know, by God's grace, I appeal to you, agree with one another. Let there be no divisions among you. Will you be 
one. We will never be unified, of course, apart from the supernatural grace of Jesus. We try, don't we? There are every, any number of ways in which we try to bring ourselves together in harmony, except that before you know it, the fissures and the cracks form. Because we really are that different, we really are that self-righteous, we really are that judgmental and critical, and we need the humbling grace of God upon us. Here Christ offers it to you. Here Christ offers the possibility of us being what we all long to be, and that is part of a body, some version of humanity that can find hope across our differences, not minimizing real differences and yet still being able to call each other brother, sister, still being able to be one. Jesus offers this to us as a gift. Are you willing to take it? Are we as a church willing to take it? Receive the grace of God. Let's pray. We ask God that you would come and make us one that you would enliven our hearts with thanksgiving, even for this flawed community. Uh, we know, God, that uh, we will never be unified until our gratitude for the church far exceeds our grumbling about the church. We ask that you would heal our divisions, whether real or perceived, and not only ours in our church, but your church all around the country and even around the world. Do this for our good. Do it most of all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.
questions. We like to do a little Q&A after the teaching just to give you a, a chance to respond or to ask for clarification because I know things aren't always clear. Uh, so if you could ask a question, that'll help our back and forth a little bit um, and define any terms that you might be using. I think we have time for about two questions uh, this time. Andrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. Sure. I mean, the question is, for, when you have uh, uh, church leaders on a broader stage who are saying and doing things, generally speaking, the right thing for most of us to do is to humbly... Pray and not make that itself an increasing divisive thing. And what I mean by that is this. It is not that um, those leaders don't need to be called to account. But most of us don't actually have access to those leaders. And so most of our rabble-rousing ends up being either virtue signaling or personal genuflecting, but not actual work of accountability and reconciliation. It actually does not do them any good 
Though there is a place for public teachers, including preachers and pastors and, and other ministry leaders, and not just those that hold office, but those that are in positions of influence, to pro- appropriately correct or to guide when there's a clear biblical matter at hand. So that's more a matter of directing how people are processing comments that are being made and that sort of thing. And that's not easy work to do. But I'm simply giving some pause to this idea that it's really easy, especially in our social media age or in this sort of everything is a public conversation age, that if anyone says anything wrong, that everybody must rise up and denounce publicly. And if you don't, then you're complicit with everything that's been said. And that's just not true. It actually just adds to the chaos, adds to the division. So I think part of what it, so I said, pray and keep quiet, and I, I mean that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it's also kind of true. We, we do need to pray more than we speak because we're really seeking a change of heart for people if you 